probably need to get going just because this topic has potential to get me on several prolonged rants. I'm going to have to restrain myself, I think. Well, obviously, we got a ton of people missing, a lot of people traveling, and a lot of people sick as well. So those of you that are here for Sunday school are probably going to get sick at the sound of my voice today. Um, even Andy wasn't able to come. They came down with something. So he was going to do Sunday school, and um, I had to kind of put together something, I guess, later than I would like. But it, it struck me that we... Um, we have an essay on, I don't know if it, an essay, article, something, on our website saying what is a Reformed Baptist or what is a Reformed Baptist church, and because that is uh, a subject that comes up. Um, people ask it, people Google it, and we have that on there. I don't know how many people have seen it or how many people have found it, but it, it struck me that we don't have anything in audio form or video form where we sort of answer that question in one little snippet, uh, briefly, that we could just send to somebody, or say, if they ask that question and they don't want to sit and read something, then we could say, hey, listen to this. So I figured now would be as good a time as any to put that out there, just so we have it available as a resource in the future. And there's likewise been perennial conversation online about certain things like, can Baptists call themselves reformed? So I'm going to try to address that as well. So some of this might be review for a lot of you, and there's no way that I'm going to answer this question in its completeness. Um, there's, there's always like greater detail that you can go into. And when I list theological distinctives or doctrinal distinctives, I'm not going to be able to necessarily defend them or say where they come from very much because that would just take way, way too long. So we're just going to say what they are and not necessarily say why, at least not to the extent that we could. So, Reformed Baptist. That is not a term that's particularly well-known in evangelical circles. Although I would say that is changing. I think it is becoming more and more well-known, which is a good thing. I'm seeing more and more churches that I've thought of as evangelical sort of trying to adopt that moniker, Reformed Baptist, and I am all for that. Um, the name itself indicates both historical roots and distinct theological characteristics. So that's the way I sort of frame it. There's a historical way to think about it and a theological way to think about it, and those two should be combined. I'm not saying, like, you can have one without the other. I think they should be together. So historically speaking, a Reformed Baptist is someone that identifies with a tradition that emerged directly from the Reformed Protestant movement. And that was obviously coming from the Reformation in the 16th and 17th century, and it was in England. Obviously, reform began sort of with Luther and then spread throughout the European continent, but once it got to England, that's where we find Reformed Baptist roots in 17th century England. The Puritans were believers, and this is going to be an oversimplification of what Puritans were, but they were believers who desired to see the church fully reformed beyond the vestiges of Roman Catholicism or any other false teaching. They wanted to purify the church. They were called Puritans. It was meant to be derogatory, but uh, I kind of like it. I like the term. And there were three primary groups of Puritans. 
And they were the Presbyterians, the Independents, and the Particular Baptists. So Presbyterians believed in Presbyterian church government, and they were Pado-Baptist. Independents lived, or, or Congregationalists believed in Congregational church government, and were Pado-Baptist. And then the Particular Baptist believed in Congregationalism, and were Credo-Baptist. So you can kind of see the overlap between these three groups. And those Particular Baptists, that section of the Puritans, that segment of the Puritans, are now today referred to as Reformed Baptist. And they all share, those three groups share common beliefs in the gospel. They share common beliefs in reformational principles, like the five solas, that sort of thing. But the Baptists were set apart by a few particular beliefs. They believed, they believed in a, a church that was independent of state control and that was governed congregationally and overseen in each local congregation by a group of elders. So independent churches, and we've talked about independence, yet interdependence between them, but that was their church government. They also rejected, of course, the doctrine of pedo-baptism or infant baptism. Some people pronounce it pedo-baptism. But the summation of their beliefs was, of course, written down in the second London Baptist Confession, often referred to as the 1689, though that's just when they were publicly identified with it. It was actually originally published in 1677, and then again in 1688, and again in 1699. But in 1689, they had the freedom to publicly identify with it, and therefore uh, it's frequently referred to as 1689. So adhering to that historic confession is the primary distinctive of being a Reformed Baptist. If you adhere to it, I, there, you're probably going to be a Reformed Baptist. There's not much way around it. And if you substantially, and, and I don't mean that in a technical sense, but if, if, if you are really holding to it, you're probably going to be a Reformed Baptist. And it does share themes with most of the language and the confessions of the other Puritan confessions, like the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians, the Savoy Declaration of the Independence, but it does seek to correct the theological errors that persisted in each one of those. And the, and the, the original Baptist, Reformed Baptist, in England did have the first London Baptist Confession in the 1644 time frame. Uh, it actually predates the Westminster, and they substantially drew most of their doctrines. They didn't change doctrines from the first to the second, but they, they, they took a different form, and they, they sort of took the Westminster and corrected it, and then amended it with some other confessions. So that is historically what a Reformed Baptist is. That's our Historical roots, right there. Theologically, though, there are several key characteristics that accompany being a Reformed Baptist. And most simply, it means that we are both Reformed and Baptist. Now, people will say those are mutually exclusive. I'll talk about that at the end. But uh, we are Reformed and we are Baptist. We believe in the five souls of the Reformation, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, that all of salvation points to the glory of God alone, and Scripture alone is the sole infallible authority for our faith and practice in the church. It's the basic understanding of the five souls. In addition to that, being Reformed means, and these are I'm just five basic distinctives of being Reformed, it means we are Calvinistic. We believe in the doctrines of grace, and yes, that is the what people sometimes refer to as tulip. That's an easy way to get through this and not pick apart, like, well, we could call it this, it could be call it that. That's fine, but we're just going to do this quickly. Can't really um, give a ton of defense for each one of these, but it's total depravity 
is the first one. Man is spiritually dead, and if man is spiritually dead, he is unable to turn to God in faith and repentance prior to being born again. So each man is a free agent, but with being a free agent, it doesn't mean you have free will because your will is bound by your nature. And if your nature is spiritually dead, then you are unable to repent and trust in Christ uh, unless your nature is changed. So that's what total depravity is. The, the totality of our being, every aspect of our being is fallen and spiritually dead and affected by the fall. So our minds and our wills and our desires and the way that we think, that's what I mean by mind, that sort of thing, all of it. Not like we are radically detra- depraved in the sense of we are bad as we could be, but that the totality of who we are, our, our body and our soul are fallen. Unconditional election. That is just that God chooses who to save of his own free will and that it's not based on anything in us. It's not based on him looking forward into the future to see who's going to have faith, who's going to be the most humble, or who is going to submit to his command to repent and believe. It's not uh, because of any foreseen good works or anything good in us. It's unconditional. It's his election of us, his choosing of us is not conditioned on anything within us. So that's unconditional election. Limited atonement or particular redemption. This is that Christ's work to atone for our sins was effectual. It was objective and therefore it was only accomplished for the elect. It was objective and only accomplished for the elect. Even though all mankind, we can say that Christ died for all in a sense that all mankind benefits in some manner from his redemptive work because his church is present in the world and that makes the world better they 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 get benefit from the atonement even if they are not literally having their sins atoned for in it but he had, and, and we say it this way he atoned for all men without distinction but not all men without exception so we say he died for the world but we don't mean by that literally every single person in the world that's ever existed we mean by that men from every tribe tongue people and nation all the elect, because the elect come from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So we say the world, he died for the world, but we don't mean every single person without exception. We mean without distinction. So we kings, queens, slaves, servants, masters, freemen, Jew, barbarian, circumcised, uncircumcised, man, woman, young, old, yada, 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 yada. All without distinction. Irresistible grace. This is one that's probably more misunderstood. What irresistible grace means is that God regenerates us in order to make us willing to become his followers, the followers of Christ, not vice versa. God does not regenerate us because we submit to him or because we ask him to or because we come to faith or because we respond with repentance. No, all of those are results of grace. Those are things that grace brings. And the grace of regeneration is what produces that in us. So grace is always resisted up until God chooses to cause us to be born again, at which point we no longer resist grace. We joyfully comply with grace because our nature has changed. Our eyes are opened. Our ears are opened. What we were blind to, we now see because of the change in us. That's where you're actually saved. And that salvation results in coming to faith and results in repenting of your sins and results in doing good works from then on out. In other words, we can always say this, regeneration precedes faith. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean chronologically, but it does mean logically. The grace of regeneration does not require our acceptance. 
it actually creates our acceptance. And if, if you're kind of confused by the logically versus chronologically uh, distinctive, think of it like when you hit a cue ball into another pool ball. You know, they hit at the same time, but one ball causes the other ball to move, right? Regeneration comes and causes faith and repentance, even though chronologically they strike at the same time, if that helps. I've heard that help me when I first uh, needed it explained. And then lastly, perseverance or preservation of the saints. And that is the idea that all of whom God elects and regenerates, also he causes to persevere in the faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, by keeping them in the faith by the power of his Spirit. He causes the Spirit to indwell them, and therefore they persist and persevere in the faith. So God preserves his elect. Once he regenerates them, he keeps them regenerate, right? We as unbelievers, or sorry, we as believers, we, we don't choose to be become uh, regenerate. It happens to us, and we can't just wake up one morning and be like, I'm no longer going to be regenerate. I'm going to go back to spiritual death. That's not actually possible. Uh, you do not determine your spiritual reality of who you are and what God has done to you. Your nature is determined by God, not ourselves. We just act according to our nature. There are those that once proclaimed faith but now reject it. We acknowledge that, but we understand them to have never been born again. And that's where we cite 1 John 2.19. Those that went out from us went out from us because they weren't really of us. And they went out to show that they were not really of us because had they been of us, they would have remained with us. So Jesus does not lose any of his sheep. You're either a sheep or a goat. God turns us from goats into sheep. And once he turns us into sheep, he keeps us sheep. And we don't determine whether or not we're, whether we're sheep or goats. We just act like we're a sheep or a goat. So that's what it means to be Calvinistic. I know, far too brief, but uh, distinctive, theological distinctive number two, we are confessional. We are confessional. As a statement of faith and a rule of practice, we hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, like I mentioned. That is the primary distinctive. We believe it is subservient to Scripture. It's neither infallible nor inerrant, like we affirm Scripture is. Yet we do believe it to be a healthy and accurate summation of the true Christian faith. And I would recommend here that, I don't know if you've seen this, we have a preface to the 1689 on our website as well to kind of say what we think about it. I'll read that in a second. But there are also derivatives of the 1689, like the Philadelphia Confession or the New Hampshire Confession. And I don't really have a strong position on like, you know, how far you can get from that historical standard before you're not exactly accurate when you call yourself a Reformed Baptist. I, I'm not going to get into that, but here's the key. Reformed Baptists use robust theological standards. That's the theological distinctive of being confessional. Robust theological standards. We don't seek to reinvent the wheel when it comes to doctrine, and we don't seek a least common denominator when it comes to doctrine. There's a lot of churches that do that now. They sort of have simplified statements of faith where they write them in such a way to be as unoffensive as possible so that people that see them or read it or come to their website see that and they're just like not turned off and they're willing to come to the church and they think if they get them in through the doors then they can win them over. So they try not to turn them off with the doctrine. Uh, we are unconcerned with that. We use robust theological doctrines. We uh, don't worry if people are turned off by it. We'd rather people know what we believe and why we believe it. So we put it out there, and they know exactly what they're getting. I will also say this. A lot of people don't come to Reformed Baptist churches by accident. 
they, generally speaking, they do so very intentionally. It's one of the reasons we have it in our name, so people know what we are. Like Michael mentioned, oh, was it last week or the week before, um, a lot of churches kind of hide their history or who they associate with or their denomination, things like that. They even take the name of what they are out of their title uh, of their churches, and we're not interested in that. We want people to know who we are. We're not trying to hide anything. This is who we are. This is what we believe is right. We're going to abide by that. So nobody's surprised. Nobody comes in here and is like, oh, I thought you guys might be charismatic. Nope, we're Reformed Baptists. So, you know, no one should really be surprised. Anyway, here, I'm just going to read, uh, if you've never heard it, I'm going to read the preface that we have for the confession. This sort of, I guess, uh, gives our attitude towards it for any that are new to it. So we, we title it, and I, I used, there is a preface to the 1689, and, and so we, we borrowed a lot of the language from that, uh, beginning with even the, uh, the addressee, or who it addresses, says, to the judicial and impartial reader. And then we say, this confession, while thorough, certainly does not address every important doctrine in the Christian faith. It is an attempt to explain with detail the distinctive doctrines that accompany fully reformed evangelical orthodoxy. When said orthodoxy is confessed, there is always a balance that must be settled on between simple phrasing that fosters understanding and high doxological language that seeks to reflect the beauty and appreciation for the teachings described. So that's just saying, like, it could be simpler or we could say it more lofty. And we're trying to draw a balance of, like, how to say it simply enough to understand it, but yet have a reverence for the, the importance of what we're talking about. That's the idea there. Likewise, there are ancient words incorporated throughout. Words like Trinity or the, the two natures of Christ. And those, those ancient words anchored the confession to the historical Christian church and set it in a stream of historical orthodoxy. So we're saying this confession uses language of the creeds and confessions of old or, or that we uh, agree with on purpose. It's doing that to say, hey, we're, we're in line with the historic Christian church. These, these are just historic Christian doctrines that the church has professed for literally hundreds of years. And we're using those words intentionally to say we're in line with the historical church. And then I cite here uh, what, what some have gone before us to say, and I cite from the original profession uh, or preface, uh, one of my favorite parts, it says, we have no itch to clog religion with new words, but we do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us, hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them. Again, that's sort of like lofty talk, but it's really, really well stated. We have no itch to clog religion with new words. We're not trying to reinvent the word, uh, the wheel. We're not trying to come up with new names for historic doctrines. We're just saying, look, others before us, and the way scripture has spoken has said it this way, and we're going to continue to say it that way because that's the way it's always been said. Then we go on to say, this confession will undoubtedly at times appear to some to be unnecessarily, uh, or uh, appear to some to unnecessarily address an issue or to be overly detailed. However, these instances typically reflect orthodox positions that may now be taken for granted. Those positions have been fought for and defended at great cost by our forefathers in the faith. If this confession is read in light of church history and with the desire to defend the depth of doctrine that has been achieved over the course of centuries, 
then it will surely, in spite of its occasional elevated language and technical minutia, point the reader to a glorious God and cause one hearts to resound with worship and praise to the one who saves sinners. And then we cite the doxology here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him from all. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So I know that that end sentence is kind of long, but if you read it slowly, um, it kind of lays out our attitude towards it. So that's what it is to be confessional. Third, we are covenantal. We hold to covenant theology. So we believe the covenants in scripture are the framework in which redemptive history transpired. We use the covenants to frame redemptive history. We believe that before creation, God made a covenant of redemption among the three persons of the Trinity, and that formalized the work and the role each person in God's decree to allow sinners uh, to, and to send a people to redeem themselves. Uh, it, it assigned a role, or that each took on a role in which salvation will take place. That's the covenant of redemption. We believe Adam was under a covenant of works in the garden to obey and to live. Covenant of works is a very distinct reformed doctrine. We, we believe the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants are not salvific in and of themselves, but provide the context and the groundwork for Christ to enter into creation and merit salvation for fallen men. Again, that's not saying that salvation wasn't present or, or, or done in those, uh, during those periods of the co- those covenants, but that salvation was only through the covenant of grace and it was retroactive and you practice the faith uh, through those covenants, but they, they in and of themselves don't save. We believe that the new covenant is the covenant of grace, which is made with the true church in the New Testament. It's at least formalized in the New Testament. It's, it, it's unbreakable. It's retroactive to Old Testament saints who received new covenant benefits via the old covenant economy, and the old covenant economy being the, the summation of the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. Again, that is a... There's a lot that could be added to that, and we just don't have time to really fill that in. We believe the church is a reconstituted Israel with no racial or ethnic boundaries. All those with true saving faith have been saved by the work accomplished by Christ in the new covenant, and that's the only way salvation is done. It's through the new covenant. Though the promise of salvation by the Messiah was prevalent and progressively revealed in greater detail, progressive revelation in the old covenant, No one has ever been saved by their obedience to the command, do this and live, that was operative during the Old Covenant context. So those Old Covenants said, do this and live. No one's ever been saved that way by them themselves doing the law of God and living. Therefore, all salvation is by grace that is won by Christ in the New Covenant. Again, I wish I could fill that in more, but we just don't have time. Uh, Number four, theological distinctive, we practice the regulative principle of worship. And that is, we only implement into formal public worship the elements of worship which we see explicitly described in God's word. We do not believe that whatever is not explicitly condemned is therefore allowable. That's the normative principle. Those that say, well, God says we can't do it, or, or God doesn't say we can't do it, therefore we can do it. That's the normative principle. We reject that. We say, we only do what God says to do. Therefore, the church is limited to practicing only the elements of worship given to us, the public reading of scripture, the preaching and teaching of scripture, praying, singing, and the two ordinances or sacraments of the new covenant, that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
We further believe that the regulative principle of worship restricts baptism and the Lord's Supper, both sacraments, to professing believers that have given evidence of true conversion. Number five, theological distinctive, we believe in the moral law of God, or another way of saying this is we believe in the law of God, but we believe in distinctives or distinctions in the law of God, and we believe there is a moral law of God that is based on God's character, character, and it's therefore always true, and it's always applicable in any time, any place, no matter which covenant you are in. In the context of God's covenants, there are additional positive laws for each covenant that likewise must be obeyed at that time. If you're in that particular covenant, when that covenant's in place, there's additional positive laws. Like the positive law for Adam in the covenant of works was not to eat of the fruit of a certain tree in the garden. Uh, He he was told to work and keep the garden. That's not applicable to us. Uh, In the Mosaic covenant, there were extensive ceremonial and civil laws that were added to the covenant. In the Abrahamic, there is circumcision. In the Davidic covenant, uh, there were positive laws for the kings to adhere to. They were subject to particular laws as kings in the Davidic covenant. Um, However, all those positive laws are abrogated in the new covenant, and we are given new positive laws in the new covenant. Things like baptism, Lord's Supper, evangelism, uh, attending church weekly. All those are positive laws in the New Testament that, uh, or the new covenant that are not in place in the old covenants. Nevertheless, from the beginning of creation and into eternity, the moral law of God always has been and always will be in place. Although men do seek to suppress it, we recognize that uh, it's known to all men by virtue of being made in the image and likeness of God. They have it written on their heart and then they seek to suppress it. And it's summarized, we believe the moral law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's why we recite them in our order of worship. We recite the Ten Commandments and then it's, uh, it's applicable Therefore, for believers today, we think it's further summarized by the first and second grace commandments of Christ that sums up the first and second table of the law. We, we, we say that is moral law. We say that it is pl- uh, applicable. Uh, and that the, all the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. And what that does mean is that Reformed Baptists, uh, this is one distinctive that you'll notice, Reformed Baptists hold to keeping the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. There's a lot of Baptists that are Calvinistic that aren't necessarily Reformed, and one of the distinctives is they'll often not hold to Lord's Day observance or a perpetual law of Lord's Day observance because they don't affirm that it's a moral law. And we say, yes, it is moral law of God. It is in the Ten Commandments. It is part of how we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, it is perpetual. So adhering to the moral law of God or affirming the moral law of God is a theological distinctive of being Reformed Baptist. So that's what it means to be Reformed, theologically. Being Baptist, theologically, means we practice credo-baptism. That is the baptism of professing believers alone. This will come as no surprise to any of you. We only baptize those that give a credible profession of faith and evidence that accompanies their sincerity. We, only, we also only baptize by the method of immersion to accurately capture the symbolism of putting the old man to death and rising again in Christ. That is a Baptist distinctive. So we do not practice infant baptism. That's pedo-baptism. We believe that infant baptism is a distortion of biblical teaching that only began in isolated areas in the mid-third century. And if you want to hear about the history of 
baptism in the early church, we do have a lesson on that that gives a historical rundown, again, a very brief one, an all-too-brief one, but that is on our sermon audio page if you want to hear about the, the history of baptism in the early church. But we believe that paedobaptism began in isolated po- uh, pockets in the mid-third century because of theological error, and then it spread from there. In addition to the historical data, credo-baptism by immersion is confirmed by a correct reading of Scripture. We don't take it from history alone. We think it's the correct reading of Scripture. We think it's a correct application of the regulative principle of worship and a complete application of Reformed hermeneutics and by correct covenant theology. We think all of those things point to credo-baptism. If you take the, the, the hermeneutic of Reformed theology, the basic hermeneutic, it should tell you to practice credo-baptism. If you have a proper covenant theology, it should point to credo-baptism, not pedo-baptism. That is, it's to be given to professing believers alone. Again, all of those could be defended in, in much, much greater detail, but we can't. Likewise, membership in the church is only available to baptized professing believers. We recognize that we differ from the majority of the Reformed tradition in this regard, We do recognize that, and that's a lot of the reason why some people don't want us to call ourselves Reformed, because we're not in the majority here. We are in the minority. But biblical doctrine has never been a matter of democracy. It's not about counting noses. It's not about being in the majority. It's about what is biblical. So in spite of being in the minority of the Reformed camp, this is what we would say it means to be truly Reformed. And I'll defend that a little bit more in just a second. And then second, uh, we are congregational. We're congregational. That's about church government. I've often said church government is subtly one of the most important doctrines. It has massive implications for how we do church, how church is done. There's no authoritative structure above the local church. That's what we mean by being congregational. Each local church is governed by a plurality of elders and deacons. Ideally, that's the way it's meant to be, not that... Uh, churches just beginning that might have just one elder or one deacon are, are wrong since they haven't uh, gotten to that point yet. But that's, the, that's the, the goal, that's the biblical model, a plurality of elders and deacons that are uh, equal, co-equal. There's a parity amongst them. I'm not the senior pastor of this church. Ken that basically formed the church uh, in his living room and started it is not the senior pastor. None of us have greater say than any of the others. Uh, Michael is no less or no more than either of us two. Uh, we each have uh, different roles, but they're all interchangeable. E- any of them can get up and teach or preach or counsel. And Michael's gone today and I teach in his place, but he normally teaches Sunday school, but when I'm gone, they preach. And you know, that we're, there's a complete parity amongst us. And that is the biblical model. And we do believe that the assembly that elects its own elders and deacons and voices its decision on matters of worship, doctrine, and discipline is the right model. The congregation voices that, and they do that through voting. That means we are against denominationalism, per se. We do not believe in denominations. We believe that there should be no superstructure above the local church that can tell the local church how to do it. Each local church is to be governed by its own elders and deacons. Now, while each congregation or local church is independent and autonomous, we, as Reformed Baptists, do associate with like-minded churches. There is an independency that we practice, but it does not mean isolation. And that's what we mean by interdependency. 
We work together with other Reformed Baptist churches by way of both formal and informal associations, and these associations do not exercise control or authority over individual churches, nor do they interfere with our affairs of each of its member churches. Uh, the local church is independent of external control and cannot and must not be subordinate to a higher central government. So that's Baptist distinctives, credo baptism and congregational. More could be said of what it means to be Baptist, but in terms of this question, uh, that is generally enough. We go on to say that while Reformed or while modern day Baptists are genealogically descended from the particular Baptist in England, the 17th century England, it is inaccurate to refer to most of them as Reformed Baptists, even though they, they, they do have those historical roots. They don't intentionally identify with those historical roots. They largely have lost their theological and confessional identities. Most Baptists today have drifted far afield from the faith and practice of their theological forefathers. That's not meant to be an insult. Uh, They've done that of their own regard because they think it's right. We think it's wrong. I'm not trying to insult them. It's just just a, a matter of fact. There are, for the most part, they are, for the most part, unidentifiable with our Puritan roots. In fact, a lot of them, hearing the, the, the title puritanical is often an, uh, an insult that m- means that uh, you're unbending, unwelding, uh, overly strict, that sort of thing. No, that's, puritanical is good, in my opinion, because they seek to purify the church. Uh, but people will typically use it as an insult and try to avoid being called puritanical. Reformed Baptists, on the other hand, us, We seek to preserve the orthodoxy that was fought for and practiced by those that have gone before us in the Reformed, Puritan, particular Baptist tradition. And that's why we intentionally identify with it and seek to preserve it, because we think it's good and right and true and helpful, and that is what it is to be Reformed Baptist. So historical distinctive and theological distinctive. There's theological distinctives with being Reformed, there's theological distinctives with being Baptist, and they are not incompatible. So let me answer this question about whether or not Baptists are reformed, whether or not we should use that title for ourselves. And I think one way to ensure that that debate continues is by not distinguishing between reformed Baptists and Calvinistic Baptists. Being reformed is more than being Calvinistic. There are Calvinistic Baptist churches that are solid and they're good, and I'm not trying to sit here and insult them, but I'm going to say that they are distinct from us Um, If if a Calvinistic Baptist church is in your area, it's most likely going to be the best church in your area, I would say. Uh, Unless there's a Reformed Baptist church. Great. Then that's even better. Uh, But but a church like Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, John Piper's church, those are Calvinistic and they're Baptist, but they're not Reformed. Uh, Piper and Piper's church, although he's not the pastor anymore, Um, He's kind of retired from that. They're charismatic. They don't hold to the confession. They are not fully reformed. But they are Calvinistic, and they're a very healthy church. I'm not trying to, again, diminish their churches. John MacArthur, we greatly appreciate his work. But he's also dispensational. And that is incongruous, incongruous, I I can never pronounce that word right, uh, with Reformed Baptist doctrine. They're very Calvinistic, though, and that is great 
and we support them. And if you live in that area, that's likely one of the best churches around. And um, learn and benefit from John MacArthur plenty. But let's not pretend he's Reformed Baptist either. He is a Calvinistic Baptist. And that's, you know, that's fine. But Calvinistic Baptist and Reformed Baptist are not exactly the same thing. And a lot of times, Calvinistic Baptists get called Reformed Baptists, and it kind of dilutes that term, Reformed, because Reformed means those other theological distinctives <clears throat> that I mentioned. And I will also say this. Reformed Baptists have greater justification than anyone to use the term Reformed. Reform is an act. It is an act. It's something that you do. So being Reformed is... That means you've done something. And I recognize that it can be used as a proper noun, right? I understand it's a title for some churches. But if we hold to that exclusive use of it being just a proper noun, just a title, then that means that the English Puritans are infringing on the continental reform because they're the first ones that used it as a title for their churches. Therefore, only they should be able to call themselves reformed and English Presbyterians shouldn't. And even the reform don't say that's the case. So there's, it, it has to be something that they've done, a body of doctrine in general that they hold to, and they're not in complete unity, but a body of doctrine that they, they hold to. Uh, if, if English Puritans are not reformed, then they're infringing on the nomenclature of the Reformed Baptist churches, or the, the Reformed churches of continental Europe, and nobody is saying that. But since reform is an act that we always continue... That is, semper reformanda, we're always being conformed to biblical doctrine, and that, that that was largely recovered in the Reformation, then it's right to apply it to Reformed Baptists. It's right to call Reformed Baptists Reformed because they've undergone that work. We are the ones that took the principles of the Reformation to its logical confusion, or conclusion. Sorry. Oh, They'll seize on that, I'm sure. So. We are the ones that fully reformed the sacraments. We are the ones that fully reformed uh, the doctrine of baptism. So, for instance, Lutherans did not fully reform the Lord's Supper. They went from, um, uh, oh my word, I'm going to uh, space out here, um, um, transubstantiation to um, consubstantiation. And that's a, that's a little bit of reform. But it, it didn't get to the, the fully reformed doctrine that Christ is present spiritually, but not physically. He's not in, worth, and under the, the bread, as the Lutherans wanted to say, and they have a convoluted theological argument for why that's the case, uh, where the, uh, the divine attributes of Christ being omnipresent are, are communicated to his physical presence. Therefore, Christ is omnipresent physically, which doesn't make any sense because then he's in the table and in us, in the exact same way, there's nothing special about him being in the bread then. Um, I shouldn't even have gotten into that uh, distinctive. Uh, but uh, we fully reformed baptism, whereas the Presbyterians, none of the Pedobaptists did that. They partially reformed it the way that the Lutherans partially reformed the Lord's Supper. Of course, they're going to disagree with us on that, but consistency with Scripture and the regular principle demands that you hold the creed of baptism. We're also the ones that fully reformed covenant theology. We hold the 1689 federalism. Presbyterians and Reformed do hold to a form of covenant theology, but they have an oversimplified, flattened version of it that is incorrect. And therefore, it results in paedobaptism. That's one of the reasons they 
hold to paedo-baptism, although they hold to paedo-baptism and came up with covenant theology to justify their paedo-baptism, and I would argue that's one of, it's kind of a tail wagging the dog type situation. It was a practice that they had in place and they were looking for a theological justification for it, but that's neither here nor there. Reformed Baptists are the ones that fully reformed church government. We are the ones that got to independency and interdependency of the church. The Reformed churches and the Presbyterians didn't do that. They're, they're their church government is better than uh, ecclesiastic, or uh, um, again, man, I am spacing out. Uh, it's better than like uh, a hierarchy. Um, man, what is the word that I'm looking for here? Uh, Episcopalianism, which is a form of church government. It's better. They reformed that, but they didn't get all the way to independency and interdependency. Again, they're going to say that, well, they shouldn't. That's wrong, but we say it is. We say that is our, our model is the biblical model. And we are the ones that rejected a state church. You know, the Presbyterians didn't originally do that. They have a state church in their original confession, and then they had to change it when they got to the U.S., and they realized that wasn't going to fly, and it was kind of, that idea was dying out, and they took it out of the confession and had to revise it. We were already there because we believed in an independent church. We are the ones that advocated religious freedom. Again, they're lagging behind on all of that. They persecuted us. But now, they're in line with us. And we are the one that fenced fenced both sacraments consistently. We fence them both the same way. You have to come to the table by faith. You come to baptism by faith. You come to church membership by faith. And it's by faith alone. So we're the ones that fence it consistently. That makes sense. It's one of the reasons that it shows that we got it right. Whereas they, they, they give pre- uh, Lord's Supper to those that are professing believers, but then they'll baptize those that aren't professing believers. It doesn't make sense to fence them in differently. So we are indeed the truly reformed ones. We have greater justification for using the term reformed more than anyone. We are truly reformed. And while they have that as a title and a proper noun, and that's fine, they have not done the full work of reform. Being reformed is about being genuinely biblical and seeing the five solas and the Reformation itself as a... a, a, recovery of being genuinely biblical. And we very much appreciate the work done by the early reformers. We very much appreciate the biblical positions of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Even today, we benefit from many of their men, but we do not think they have fully reformed. We think we have fully reformed. We are the, really, the true reformed ones. They haven't completed it. Now, I'm not, I'm not campaigning that they cease and desist from using that moniker reformed just because of their ongoing error. But neither should they insist that reformed Baptists drop the, drop the title just because we don't practice paedo-baptism or because our covenant theology is, I would say, more well-developed than theirs. It's rightfully ours because we've done the actual work of reformed. Thus, we are reformed because reform is an act. We've done that act. So, if you want any greater detail on any of those uh, individual things, on the history or the theological distinctives, I know it was way too quick. Hopefully, each one of those, you could kind of search our sermon audio pages for, like, regular principle and come up with a few sermons or lessons where it's been talked about in greater detail and uh, defended more. Uh, we, we've 
Obviously, we've put in a lot more work on distinctives with moral and positive law. That's in some of our covenant theology teaching. We also went through it with the men when we went through, uh, what was the name of that book that we did? The Law and the Gospel, gospel, um, uh, which was a helpful book, a distinctive between law and gospel. That's a Man, that should be one of the distinctives. When I talk about the moral law of God, we distinguish between law and gospel. I might have to amend this whole thing and add that in and redo this. Uh, We distinguish between law and gospel. There's another theological distinctive. Number six. (laughs) Wherever scripture says do this, we say that's law. Whenever it says God has done this, that's gospel. Again, far too quick, but uh, hopefully that adds clarity and hopefully this can serve as a uh, a resource for our church and anybody searching out what a Reformed Baptist church is in the future. Um, With that, let's prepare our hearts for worship um, in about 10 minutes.